from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. On this glorious Wednesday morning, <laughs> yeah, Shane is chuckling away. It's beautiful uh, out there. It's gorgeous. It is icy. It is clotted with traffic. Um, anyway, this is, uh, I'm your host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton Department of Statistics. And this is Wharton Moneyball, where we discuss statistics and sports for two hours every Wednesday morning. 8 a.m. If you listen to us right now, you're listening live. And I'm joined in the studio right now with Shane Jensen, my dear colleague from the Department of Statistics and, and avid sports fan and rabid Boston Red Sox fan. He has a baseball hat on this, this morning celebrating yeah. upcoming Looking spring. Looking forward to the upcoming season if all our pitchers' arms don't fall off. Well, yes, you do not have very many arms. You do have a lot of bats, though, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty impressed on that side. Yes, yep. Um, so for the next half hour, we're going to be talking sports, uh, Shane and, and I, and eventually our colleague, Cade Massey, who has just dropped into the studio. It's been a difficult morning for all of us, uh, I have to say. I, I, I battled the ice um, pretty uh, magnificently. I'm a, a pretty... Um, well, I'm an aggressive driver. I, I think that's anyone who's driven with me knows that. Yeah, I have to admit yeah, that. And yeah. so uh, when the when when the going auto, gets auto, automated rough, cars are designed for you. Basically. Yes, they are. I'd yeah. actually like to do so. In fact, I, I'll tell you. Let's bring it back to the to sports. I was um, I was actually listening to a baseball game that I cared about in March. What would that be? Well, it's the World Baseball Classic. You care about the World I Baseball Classic. Be- that's awesome. And the reason why I do that, it's an opportunity to see guys with last names like mine, a bunch of American Jewish baseball players, play on the world stage and actually do well. It's it's a uh, it's it's a remarkable event. I actually I'm really enjoying it. You talking so, about the Israeli team? I'm talking about the Israeli team, which is really not really an Israeli team. It's really well, an American Jewish team. Okay, fine. But none of the teams are really you know what they're supposed to be. I mean, the Netherlands team, which crushed Israel in the second round. The Canadian team is pretty pure. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, there are people from Canada. I mean, it's not. It's. I think almost everybody in on the Canadian team grew up in Canada. As opposed to they like actually, you know just right. having like Canadian citizenship randomly. Oh, actually, the rules are, which is interesting. The rules are you can play for the national team if you're eligible for citizenship. You don't actually have to have it; you just have to be eligible to get it. Oh, so Canadians, um, if well, I don't know actually what the citizenship no. offer is. If you're born in the United States, or are you automatically a Canadian citizen? If your parents are, do you have to actually go out and apply for it? What's the what's the process? But but um, so the Amer- the Canadians are probably actual Canadians. Yeah. Um, the Americans are actual. Americans, the Japanese are actual Japanese. And How far did Israel, Israel make it? Uh, Israel actually, well, so Israel was not even, I mean, they had to qualify to get in, which is highly unusual. Um, qualifiers almost never never do do very well. They, they actually won the qualifying and made it in. They were the only team not ranked in the top 20 to enter, enter the tournament. They were actually 41. And they just cruised through the first round. They defeated um, top-ranked team Korea, number three, top-ranked team type, uh, Chinese Taipei, number four. Wow. And they also defeated uh, Netherlands, which is the ninth yeah. Yeah, no, the Netherlands, Netherlands has, has terrific, terrific uh, American League All-Stars yeah. who play for them. And then, of course, in the very first round, they beat Cuba, also one of the top-ranked teams. Yeah. But um, the Netherlands handed them a big loss with uh, 
with so they Didi did not Gregorius make, they really didn't make it out of this sort of initial well, round robin the, the or second, whatever it is. It's really the second round. They're actually yeah. in it right now, and the game right now will decide their fate. It's actually going on actually right now in Japan. All right. And I was listening to the game in, 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 the, uh, in the car. But what, so the, wait, Israel and Cuba have to travel all the way to Japan to do this thing? Well, the, the, the rounds take place all around the world, and yeah. Israel had to travel, and Cuba had to travel all that's, the way to, to, to Japan. The, there were other divisions taking yeah. place in, in this side of the, of the earth. Now, interestingly enough, one of the things people ask the question is, how is it possible? for a incredibly you know ragtag Israeli team to make it this far and beat such top competition. Well, I mean, I was I was going to say, how is it even possible that they were ranked forty first in the world? There's forty other countries that play base, American baseball. Uh, well, you know, it's it's a good question. <laughs> I it mean, really how did is they a, get to... it, it really is a good question. <laughs> how that... I mean, I, I I could maybe count ten. Well, it, it's it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, it, it. And this is not. I mean, obviously, I have a. I, this is not a disparagement of American baseball. Obviously, I love it myself. You know, but I, I also kind of realize that its 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 appeal is it's a North regional. American and and it's a it's Car- a, I mean maybe there's a maybe there's there's a lot of countries just a lot of Caribbean. South American Caribbean teams there are yeah uh, but what really what it is is el- eligibility so yeah. essentially because of that eligibility rules Australians anyone who's in America who has a, who is eligible for citizenship in another country they can play for that country so right. Italian teams are a bunch of Italian Americans yeah, yeah yeah the I remember Mike Piazza I think played Mike for the Piazza Italian, for the Italian team. Team. so it's is really, he still playing for the Italian yeah, he could be I don't He's know probably better than the rest of the team but what's remarkable because this is the first time the israeli team did manage to make it yeah. and, it, and there's no baseball in israel at all to speak of so it's mm-hmm. not like a sport is played there yeah and the reason why they were able to do so is they have american former major leaguers they have ike davis they have uh, uh jason marquis they also have a, a whole string of double uh, a AA and triple a players yeah and what's remarkable to me is that those players are really good i mean that's it's something to to really think about the the, the scale of talent yeah to be an all-star in the major leagues is one thing to be in the major leagues is another but actually it's fairly compressed so w- one of the things that i was describing to someone how is it possible for israel to do so well is well they have some of the world's best baseball players i mean they're not in the top 500 but when you drop down to the next 500 it that is, gap is not as major right. as it is in golf as it is in tennis and so someone who is not a top 500 in part baseball because player, it's such a tough road to baseball i assume like you've got a ton of people in the minor you know you've got this like wealth of people in the minor leagues that are sort of like i mean it yeah. basically you have like a, a, a real kind of hierarchy of levels that lead you up to the major, major leagues and each one of those you know, triple A's, double A's, single A's is populated by a lot of people. Populated by a lot of people. It's also differentially, um, they're obviously different, but it takes a long time to see that yeah. difference. So if you take a look at a triple A AAA player, they're extraordinary good good on the field, and it would take a season's worth of observation to differentiate them from a major league yeah. baseball player. And you don't see that, say, in basketball. So I want to welcome into our studio, Cade Massey. Good morning, guys. Kate, it's uh, it's uh, nice for me to be in, in your seat. I guess we'll probably do a little swap some some point later I'm, on. I'm happy for you to have it for the balance of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did manage to steer the conversation in your absence to baseball. I don't know how you I'm, feel about that. Well, I, I've got a sort of kind of a world baseball classic story myself. Kind of, I mean, you were talking about the Israeli team. Let's talk about the Canadian team. So the Canadian pitcher, one of the um, Things turn pictures. This guy Ryan Dempster, who I mean, again, if you're a Red Sox fan, actually, if you're a Cubs fan, he played in the major league. He had a pretty healthy major league career. I mean, not you yes, know, he did. not notable. We're not going to be talking about him for the Hall of Fame or anything like that. But he had a he had a good major league career. I think retired about three years ago. Really couldn't, you know, kind of yeah. voluntarily. He was one of these people voluntarily retired, was walked away from baseball. Decides to come back and pitch for Canada, the World Baseball Classic. Really kind of 
touching story. Of course, he has to go up against the Dominican Republic. <laughs> so your first They're time, your first time back in competitive baseball in three years, and you have to face like Jose Bastista and Hanley. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. I mean, it went better than one might think. Well, listen, you, we were talking baseball right now, and just for our listeners to let you know, you can join us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four. Nine four two seven eight six six. And speaking of joining us, we actually have a caller. We have John from Florida. What's your uh, question or comment or observation, John? Okay. Um, well, being that this is actually my first time listening to the show, I discovered the I, I discovered the business channel just a couple of couple of weeks ago. It's I'm always Rayleigh baseball right. all the time. Oh, you should know that it is. Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, is it, and it's very appropriate because. I was, uh, being that it's Moneyball, I wanted to sing the praise of Theo. Okay. Because, well, and what happened, the reason, I mean, how I discovered Theo is I'm I'm sort of a World Series fan. I mean, I'm not necessarily, I'm not one that will, and even though I'm in Florida with spring training, I I have not been to a major league baseball game in probably 40 years. Not longer. Um, that's too but, bad. I mean, it's a great experience. So, know, what makes you a, what makes you a World Series fan only? You just watch well, the World Series because you know it's it's saying okay they've gotten there. But but what happened was was that um, last year I was poking around in a in like a Goodwill bookstore or a good actually just a Goodwill and I was just going through the books and I found Theology, which was the story of Theo and, and I it, it talked about it from a business point of view. At, you know about how he did things, and then when I'm sitting there, you know, and I and he and plus he got the you know he took the he took the Red Sox. He series. ended he ended two a, major curses. That's right. I know. Yeah, but the thing was, was that, you know, so he, and then when I I'm sitting there and I'm watching, you know, and and I was the Cubbies fan, and so when I I'm sitting there and I'm watching the I'm watching the game, I did not know that he had moved to the Cubbies. And when I'm I'm hearing that you know I'm hearing the, in the, the John the John, yeah. that's that's too bad you didn't know that it was probably one of the most talked about events in, in <laughs> baseball because I mean Theo Epstein really is an all star he's not an all star in the field but he's in the Hall of Famer. Do you have a question, John? Well, it was more like it was just the comments. I mean, thinking about saying, hey, you know, success leaves footprints, and Theo took the Cubbies to the series. So you know, and they sit there and say, ah, oh, well, you know, but the two major curses. It was more like a comment. Right. I, uh, really, I thought that was really, really cool. It is cool. And it is remarkable what, what Theo Epstein has done. I can bring it back to the World Baseball Classic. Obviously, uh, you know, Theo Epstein would be eligible for, to play for the Israeli team as well, uh, but not on the field. We probably could have used him as general manager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, He's pulling off all these major trades. Are there yeah, trades right. allowed at the World Baseball Classic? I'm, I'm not sure there are. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the manager's uh, Jerry Weinstein. He's, he's, a, he's a, um, a minor league manager. He's, he's very highly regarded. But... I guess so. We, I guess, Jewish Americans have had more sex, more success on the other side of the field, not actually on on the field. So yeah. it's actually fun to watch uh, this this game. Although I think by the time we finish our show, their run will be completed. <laughs> so that ends our at least our discussion of the World Baseball Classic. I mean, it's probably going to come down to the United States versus. Japan. Um, oh, I don't know the Dominicans. Dominicans. Really those, Dominicans, of course. I don't think the Dominican Republic has lost a World Baseball Classic game in something like three of these. It's it's crazy. It's they've, been they've a, run it's the been a very long time. So let's. Why don't we just do our, our normal beginning? What is uh, what else caught your eye in sports this week? We haven't been together. We were we were away on spring break last Wednesday, so we weren't able to do a live show last Wednesday. So the last time we were in the studio was two weeks. A lot has happened since then. Yeah. Uh, our our buddy and dear colleague Cade Massey was at the MIT Sports. 
Sports Conference. We'd like to get a report from you on that. Is that uh, something you want to talk about? Sure, 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 sure. I, it does feel like we've been away for a while. I missed the last show before spring break as well, so it's been a bit. Um, the 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 MIT Sports Conference was at just a week and a half ago, the weekend leading into our spring break, and I was there to moderate a panel that included Daryl Morey, the organizer of the conference, the creator of the conference 11 years ago. He is now, of course, the general manager of the Houston Rockets. Billy Bean. Billy Bean. Billy Bean. The, the, the money the, ball the, namesake. Yes, exactly. He, um, he, of course, is the general manager for the Oakland A's, and he had never been to the conference. This is something I learned there. This was his debut at the conference. Also on the um, panel was Sam Hinkey. Former general former. manager of the Sixers and the now Sixers and the author of the author of that terrific uh, letter which we dissected letter. on the, the air. manifesto. The manifesto. And we also had the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, a major Moneyball guy, Farhan Zaidi. Zaid. 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 He was a PhD student in the behavioral econ well economics group at Berkeley. Working with a couple of behavioral economists. And for those who don't know, our listeners, Cade Massey is, I guess you would call a behavioral economics in some capacity. But yes, so my degree is not in economics. Yeah. Um, it's a, my degree is at business school, but half the training was in econ, half in psych. But um, Farhan was in the PhD program working with a couple of guys I know and saw this advertisement to be an analyst for the A's mid-grad school and so went and did this and now whatever it is now 15 years or something he is gm of the dodgers wow. and invested heavily super nice guy. i wonder what the denominator of people who uh decide to go into baseball analytics from their phd is like how how, how common is that path? well i mean obviously not the path to gm of the right. dodgers <laughs> that's incredibly uncommon but how many people kind of go from you know because it is something that certainly attracts a lot of our students interest while they're in a right. statistics that, PhD you know, program. Th- there is a there's a there's a common yeah. element there between the analytically minded, the mathematically minded grad students, yeah. and the folks who are interested in that. Right, right. Um, it's it's an explosion at this point. And I mean, five ten years ago, it was somewhat rare. And at this point, practically every everyone doing statistics at a high level is and who has at least a background in sports is interested yeah. in applying it. And and teams are hiring people like Farhan. And, and when when Sam was here with the Sixers, he had a group of ten or twelve analysts, some of whom were doctorates in fields like physics and applied math, and um, really interesting set that he collected. So. There's some interest out there in people like that, and but but to but to couple that discipline and background with the ability to run a team yeah. that's that seems rare. Well, running a team is a hell of a lot more than statistics. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah. It's, no, it's, no, it's very much very so, much. So, better. what was the discussion at the at the uh, panel? The, the panel Daryl put the panel together because uh, he, as he sat down, we sat that it was as much fun to sit around with these guys before the panel. We sat around for about forty five minutes beforehand in the green room kicking things around and when daryl plopped in daryl you know daryl's the king of the whole thing so he's just running from one thing to another the whole two days and he plops in kind of last minute pops down and he's like people are so fucking bad at decision making (laughs) 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 that was his motivation for the panel because the panel was overcoming cognitive bias right now, Billy, on the other hand, is like, come on, Daryl, I haven't been here in 11 years, and you want us to talk about overcoming cognitive bias? Don't we have bigger? And But but Daryl and Sam were adamant. It's like, that's the big thing that we're struggling with as organizations, and so that's what we want to talk about. Um, it was it was a fun. 
uh, of course. And it was, and I, I, I know Daryl and I know Sam. I had never met Billy Bean before, and I didn't know Farhan. So it was, it was, it was personally enjoyable that way. But it was also interesting to see what those guys talked about. The one of the things that I was that I picked up is that Billy has backed away some. He he talks about being almost exclusively quantitative in personnel evaluations in the deep Esta days when they first started going. Mm-hmm. That they really, he says, went too far basically, and then realized that they were leaving some things out. And so one of the main conversations was about how do we bake into our models what heretofore has been kind of qualitative, subjective opinion. And and, 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 and are you talking about things kind of unquantified, like things like team chemistry and stuff like that, like things that are are were they missing out something specific? Not at the did team they, level. Did, we ta- interesting. Okay. We didn't at the talk, individual we, we level. But say, well, but, or at the individual level, how this player kind of slots into the team in terms of a Not kind necessarily of slotting chemistry in. thing. No, no. They, we no. had a, we had a chemistry conversation, and they were pretty skeptical about. Yeah, about I would, I would that. guess so. So I would be surprised. It's interesting because because our longtime guest uh, Rick Peterson has always talked about. The not he doesn't use the word chemistry, but what a player brings to the clubhouse in terms of yep. leadership. Yeah, and so actually, these and, guys and, these guys had a, a nuanced story on that that I appreciated, which was that they they do consider that and they think it's important as kind of a finishing note that it's not a main reason to bring a guy in, and if you bring a guy in into a team that's already not very good, that's not going to be sufficient. But if you've got a team that's got all the parts. And a guy that can contribute to that, and is also a good locker room guy, then yeah. maybe that's maybe that's a time to bring him in. So it's a right. chance to take a good team to great. It's but would they? But they would they bring in somebody who, like, like if if all the quantitative stuff said like this guy is like exactly what we need. He's complimentary to us. He brings something quantitatively that we don't have, but he's also got this reputation for being a very bad clubhouse influence. Do you think that these types of decision makers would, 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 would that give them enough pause to not pull the trigger on a deal? Right. We didn't talk as much about the bad actors. Yeah. And so I can't say for sure. So what was the focus? That Real quickly, I can say that there, I know that there are, you know, it's interesting that the general managers, even the very professional, thoughtful, decision-making oriented, decision process oriented dis- general manager. So we're already cutting down a fair bit across sports. Very some on whether they're straight analytics people or more team culture people. And this this turns out there's almost even a conflict where some of the guys can be very decision processes, very um, very thoughtful, and yet all load up on on the soft stuff and right. kind of reject the analytics side. So for example, the Seahawks might be thought this way. So, so Pete Carroll's widely lauded as getting team culture and leadership better than almost anybody else. Even within the NFL, this, this guy's head and shoulders above it, but they're not an analytics based organization. Then you go all the way to like a Sam Hinkie or Daryl leans this way as well, which is much more quantitative, but they even said that Billy was the most mathematically oriented yeah. as a manager of any of them. And then you have some people in the middle, who, like like Sam Presti at Oklahoma City, who's uh, of both minds and wants to be rigorous in the analytics side, but but doesn't want to ignore altogether right. the leadership and culture side. So when you say there's bad cognitive decision making or just bad decision making, is that a conflict between what the, a- anal- the analytics, the logic is saying and kind of what culture and what your instinct is saying and the, when those 
interfere. So can you give us an example of what, what do you, exactly do you mean by this bad decision-making? Yeah, talk so, about that. Well, it's, it's, let's, let's be careful because people can make mistakes with data as well. Absolutely. So, well, this, well, but we, we talk about this a lot. You can make a good process and have a bad outcome. Yeah. And it's nothing, it wasn't your decision-making. It was just, just the, the dice didn't play out. Yeah. But you mean making a mistake with data, and we see that all the time, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So the, but, but, but the motivation for the panel is more the other way around, which is people make mistakes with, with you know, they're overconfident in their decisions. Yeah. They, react to most, they react to trends. They see stories where there aren't stories. An interesting, an interesting variation on this was, you might call it regret. Daryl wanted to call it loss aversion. There's a bit of loss aversion here, but it's kind of regret, anticipated regret, getting in the way of bad decision of a good decision. So Farhan was talking about making a deal to send a player a good trade, but they were worried what the tr- player might do once they traded him away, right? And how that worry impeded their ability to pull the trigger on the trade, and it was almost this anticipated regret thing. Of of not wanting to see him do well somewhere else because that would be so painful, and Farhan even if it was a good trade, even if it was a good trade, it would be so painful if he ends up playing well for somebody else. Farhan says, "Okay, let's think about it this way, guys. Would you make this trade if we could just walk him out back and shoot him?" (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm trying to understand, unpack this a little bit because what you're talking about above and beyond what a good player for your competitor—that's you don't want, obviously. Your your competitor carries this extra punch. It carries this extra punch. Sort of this regret that you just didn't like it. And 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 Daryl's right in loss about loss aversion here because the the pain of his performing well for somebody else exceeds the the presumed gain of his performing well for you. Mm-hmm. That the, the loss carry, I and mean, this is a, lo- a well-established principle in psychology now, that, that losses of equal size weigh about twice as much psychologically. And, and, and they're, that, that's sort of within their own psychology. It's not just sort of an anticipated p- public relations sort of media battle that they're but, sort of no, saying. I that, like a I media don't, doubt, that so I don't I, doubt that that's mixed in. Can so. I try yeah. to get a, a deeper explanation? What yeah. you just said is losses of equal size matter twice as much. Do you mean that a win balancing yeah. with a loss, the loss... You need yeah. a twice as good a gain on the, the right. right-hand side of the equation to overcome a loss on the on the left. That's right. When, of course, mathematically, it's one-to-one. Right. One. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's, so that's remarkable. That's back to Israel, man. That's Kahneman and Tversky. That's early... Early Kahneman. Well, well, no, no. Mid, late seventies. I knew that losses. No, I know the the, the literature that Kahneman Tversky with that losses are 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 more considered more devastating, and they and but I didn't know that there was a size attributed to. Oh to yeah, that. it's the, it's the, like it's actually the effect size of two. Yeah, like a little more than two, but it's like <laughs> it's two point zero two. It's, it's, <laughs> Well, they, you know, in the original very prospect, in very, in the, well, the original prospect theory paper was published in Econometrica, so you can yeah. imagine that there is yeah. a precise estimate in yeah. that particular study. But it's been seen in lots of domains. It's kind of surprisingly robust around two, a little bit more than two, about twice as much. So the heuristic is twice as much. Ah, okay. That, that's yeah. actually a, a fact you can use. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, I mean, when you're, when, I mean, you should be aware of it when you're offering people these called mixed gambles, possibility of gains and losses that they won't be valued in a rational way. The loss piece will carry disproportionate weight. How can you use that to your advantage on the other side? I mean, we're talking right now about mistakes that that managers makes because because of this phenomenon. Yeah. Is there a way you can you can game the system knowing that well, your Shane opponent just, has it? Shane just picked a good one, which is how much of that is tied up in anticipated fan reaction, right? And teams that can withstand that 
are have have a have an arbitrage opportunity essentially because yeah. a lot of teams can't withstand it and so they can't take those gambles they can't yeah. bear the risk like I always think of like the sort of like go for it on fourth down at like Absolutely. say like your That's own right. forty or something like that or you know in forty five. Very few coaches make that move, and I think it's because they sort of like, if the move fails, it's kind of the burden is on the co. You know, mm-hmm. it's obvious that who made that mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if, uh, I mean, I if they if they go for it and it does not work, the coach gets blamed. If they mm-hmm. go for it and it works, the players get the mm-hmm. credit. <laughs> I'm gonna, so, you know. so, so broadly, Adi, the, the advantage you can take is that you can, yeah. you can bear more risk than others if you don't have that distortion. And so you don't have to leave as much value, expected value, on yeah. the table by walking away from. So the somebody like Belichick is very, you know, is is very safe in his own uh, position. Can can take those risks more. I mean, I was reading an article actually in Five Thirty Eight, which was discussing some of the way baseball has been reacting some to some of the shifts and various different uh, observations and and the analytic side of baseball. And here's an interesting uh, uh, statistic that they that they discussed. What do you think is the the success rate, or what you might call the batting average, on a bunt for a base hit? Do you have any? Just a, a bunt for a bunt base for, hit. So the average, the batting average, sa- they're not trying to sacrifice. So they're, they're not trying. trying to, there's nobody on, so there's no no attempt to sacrifice. So it's a surfi- surprise bunt, in other words, or well, not, not really. Not necessarily. There are some some who do it more so frequently. So we're coding the entire at bat if they ever try to bunt within an at bat. They, that's right. So we're looking at any time they try to bunt at any point in the at bat when there's yeah. nobody on. So there's yeah. no point of a sacrifice. What do you think the success rate is? I was I was amazed by this. I'm, I'm giving it away. Obviously, uh, higher than the what's the what's the two sixty base? is the baseline batting average. So mm-hmm. about one in four attempts to get a hit are successful. Three hundred. So three hundred. Any. Three fifty. It's about four fifty to five hundred, depending what? on what. It's unbelievable. The success rate at batting for a bunt is extremely high, huh. and. And I think maybe this is cognitive bias, and one of the reasons why we don't see more of it, and this is my connection, is that because of the loss that's considered the the, the feeling of regret when you bunt unsuccessfully for a hit, you take such... Shit for it because yeah. who's bunting for a base hit when there's nobody on? What are you What are you doing? And this is the conventional wisdom that this is an idiotic idea. Of course, and, you're giving and, and, up- pro- and probably the people that are willing to accept that risk are the people that we already know are exceptionally good at that skill, well, like something like Ichiro or something like there that. Are, and, yes. and so that's what pumps up the kind yeah, of like, success rate. Tremendous. They're very fast. Yeah. They, they, they do it. But there are actually some, some... It turns out, I mean, for example, uh, Car- uh, Carlos Pena, who has shifted on immensely, yeah. this guy bunts for a success, for successfully into the shift at, at rates over 500 and doesn't so, do but it they, that but much. But they still shift on him. That's they weird. They still shift on him. And, the, and they don't shift. They don't bunt. And they bunt about 1% in, of the time into the shifts, which has not changed. So uh, take a... T- well, they have away, a shift away from, away the, shift, from the shift. But yeah. when they have a shift, they bunt only 1% of the time, which actually hasn't changed in 10 years, yeah. even though the number of shifts has increased by a factor of 10. So it's. I think that there's an opportunity out there. Yeah. It's probably. Being I, bet, I, bet, I bet they do. I bet that continues to evolve. I mean, yeah. we know that things move slowly and they adapt slowly, and they're reluctant. These big hitters are reluctant to turn into bunters, but they they'll they'll. We're not at equilibrium yet. And do you think they're because I know that reluctance is well documented with some people like Mark Teixeira or David Ortiz, who are very were, were, yeah. did not bunt you know into their shifts very often at all. Do you think it is sort of this? Mostly cognitive, or is it just something like they have actually tried to do bunting and it just messes up enough with the rest of their game plan that they, you know, it's not worth it for them? I, I, I this is, I, I don't yeah. have enough institutional knowledge to know, but I would, I think that some of it is, I don't know, but it's not an era. I think it's just hard to adapt and change and accept the new circumstances. They, they, they came up 
Yeah. And they've been successful in one set of circumstances. The circumstances changed, and it's going to be slow to move. I, I think yeah. we'll see some adaptation. I think the younger players will learn this bunting skill along the way, and yeah. they'll have it at their disposal. And, and even a, a, a slugger will recognize they'll need that skill because they're yeah. going to be shifted Look, on. How long did it? How long did it take for three-point shooting to catch on in the NBA? Oh. Yeah, and and the skill, the three point shooting skill has gotten better, has evolved, but it's taken another generation, it's maybe a, two generations. It's amazing of the slowness. Yeah. In fact, if I if I had to give sort of business advice that's related to this, is that something that seems obvious still takes a very long time to capture the rest yeah. of the market, and and you can use that as an opportunity if you know it's going yeah, to catch up. You can, but you can also be too early. You, you, you can got to you've got to have the support of ownership at least, ideally fans, but ownership at least. So this is uh, the conclusion of our first half hour. When we return from our break, we're going to be interviewing C.J. Wilson, who is a retired MLB pitcher for the Texas Rangers, and he's actually the owner of C.J. Wilson Racing. And we're not going to be talking about baseball. We're going to be talking about auto racing. And so when we return from our break, um, we will be uh, in, uh, introducing C.J. Wilson, but just for a very short 15-minute interview. And then we'll have a, a second interview with a tremendous opportunity to, for us to interview Ken Pomeroy, who is really the super stats guru in, uh, in basketball. And this is, of course, Major League basketball season for the NCAA tournament, which yeah. begins. So we will uh, see you right after our break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Audie's been in the host chair for the first half hour. I've been drug over here for the second half hour, and presumably we're going to bring in Shane for the battles after yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This is the second quarter of the show and a quarter in which we bring in a guest. We are delighted this morning to have C.J. Wilson. C.J., of course, retired Major League Baseball pitcher for Texas Rangers, also the L.A. Angels. Now... CJ is owner of CJ Wilson Racing. So, CJ, guys, give us just a little bit of background on CJ's baseball career. Prime the audience for our guest who's coming up. Oh, he was. I, I thought he was. He was one of the top pitchers for a few years though when he was pitching for Texas. I think he he was part of their kind of their World uh, Series teams when they went up against great the St. Louis Cardinals, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he was he was fantastic, and he signed a pretty big contract if I remember correctly with LA. Um, and it's you know, always so. interesting to hear a superstar in one sport transition into another sport. Yeah. Well, and now we have CJ on the phone. So, CJ, welcome to the show. Morning, guys. Morning. Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm calling in from the straightaway between turn 16 and 17 at Sebring. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, most of our guests do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's common. If you hear any, uh, you hear any whistling, that's, the, uh, that's the, the prototypes are out there right now. So. Oh, that's good fun. Uh, so what, what, is, what is the event this week? Uh, this weekend is the, uh, mobile one, 12 hours of Sebring. Um, and, uh, it's one of the, the biggest races of the year. It's part of the, uh, North American endurance championship. So a lot of teams from Europe and stuff will come over here to run specifically, uh, Daytona 24 hours. And then this race, got it. Um, it's, it's my, uh, my pro debut, I guess as well. So it's a big, big weekend for me, um, get behind the wheel against all these other, you know, punks and uh and, <laughs> and, and is that the vernacular is that the common vernacular all right 
so well, there's, you know, you have different levels of drivers. You have the young punks. You have the uh, the old guys. You've got the money managers. You've got the um, I don't know the veterinarians. You know, depending on your. <laughs> Where do you slot into from? this? Where do you slot well, into like for, former well, major league baseball up, player category that you just invented? I'm the wash up. I'm right. the washed up guy. So, uh huh. Yeah. So this is a pretty big transition from the pitching mound. How, how did this occur? Uh, I've I've been doing this for ten years. I mean, this is something I've always I, I've done track days and racing school, and I've, I've been racing on and off for you know an amateur races for for about uh, racing racing for like. Eight or nine years, mm-hmm. and then uh, dri- driving on the track for eleven years. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not like new to me at all. I, I grew up around you know the track a little bit. I used to go kart when I was a kid, and um, we we uh, got to a, a, a point where budget was going to be an issue. So I decided, you know, I'll do something a little bit more like low reaching, and I'll just be a baseball player. Just do that kind of blue collar <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, right. So CJ, we can baseball pitchers have kind of personalities or types of pitchers. Are there types of race race drivers? Totally. What and yeah, what totally. and how would I you mean, characterize your type? I don't know. I'm new, so it's like I, it's TBD. You know, I think there's certain things that I'm you know naturally better at than other things. Um, but uh, everybody has everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Otherwise, they wouldn't be at the point that that I'm at right now. Um, it's just like baseball. You know, I mean, some guys have a really good changeup and not a very good curveball. And yep. I think some some guys are better at handling different types of circumstances behind a wheel. Yep. Um, my my learning technique has been very eclectic. I've driven every different type of car, um, except for a NASCAR, I guess. And part of that is it, in, in order to educate myself and, and to learn new skills. Because in order to use some cars to their potential, you have to drive them a particular way. Well, if you drive every different type of car then you can kind of like continue to drive anything, you know, because you have to learn the, all the techniques. Yep. And so it's a, a backwards way of looking at it for some people because they think that the best way to do it is to stick with one car and just do that. But then the reality is that you, there's no world, you know, there's no 24 hours of Le Mans for Miatas, right? So it's like you have to kind of graduate into the faster categories um, eventually and, and challenge yourself by learning and, and you know, trying something more difficult. And I think the difficulty brings out the sort of auto auto response for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I tend to retain I tend to retain those skills. Interesting. So how how do you phys, how physically demanding do you find this sport relative to baseball? Well, I definitely know I'm not going to need elbow surgery from driving. If that's right. what you're asking. <laughs> I've had, I had four elbow surgeries and a shoulder surgery from pitching. Okay. Um, I had a, I tore my Achilles tendon. Um, I tore uh, my patellar tendon. I got a stress fracture in my back, uh, <laughs> stress fracture in my leg. Um, Pitching is not easy, is it? ACL. Well, Turns yeah. out car racing is a lot safer. Yeah, car racing. <laughs> it's a, hey, at least you have seatbelts on, right? It's true. You know? So it's like, and, and uh, you know, you don't wear fireproof underwear on the mound. So um, so there are, there are a lot of safety precautions, and I think, you know, I've I've been uh, been fortunate to have a long major league career, and, you know, and not looking at as as a negative or anything like that. But at the same time, I, I think in order to to have prolonged my major league career, I would have had to go back in time and tell myself as a twelve year old, "Hey, stop pitching, because you're going to get arthritis, you idiot." And then, um, you know, because I, I don't have any cartilage left in my in my left elbow, so it's like every couple wow. every couple months. You know, I'd start developing a new bone spur, and then I lose 10, 20, 30 degrees of motion in my elbow, you know, over the span of a, of a month or two. And it's just like, yeah, I have to stop pitching and go get it cleaned out. So, Jeez. Um, 
it, it, it's like driving your car without an oil change. You know, right. so I had to get my elbow drained. Like in 15, you know, I, I had to get my elbow drained every every two weeks, um, and 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 get like artificial uh, synovial fluid injected into it. Right. You know, so I could so it have any kind of lubrication. It was like driving, you know, it was like driving on flat tires or you know, driving an engine with no oil. On right, it. right, right. That's what I was doing. So CJ on the analytics side, baseball was pretty early into the game, and um, but but teams and players differ in their level of interest in, in analytics. Um, were you much of an analytics guy when you were pitching, and are you using uh, analytics yeah. now? Of course, um, you know my grandfather was a mathematician. Um, he was a calculus professor, so I learned you know probability and all that type of stuff. As a kid, you mm-hmm. know, I was very into that. He taught me how to trade stocks in the stock market when I was 12 years old. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that 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 carried over to baseball to the point where I would always be analyzing, you know, like what's what's a what's a pitch sequence that makes sense based on this guy's body type. What's the pitch sequence that makes sense based on this guy's tendency to swing at the first pitch or mm-hmm. to take strike three versus swing at strike three to chase out of the zone up in the zone. If he chases up in the zone, how do I get there? You know, and you always have an end result in, in mind as a baseball player. You know, when you're on the mound, you're trying to force the action a certain way. If you throw a pitch, you initiate the action. So you're trying to make sure business occurs on your on your terms. Mm-hmm. It's like if you always get to lead the negotiations. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of the way pitching is. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything you know, analogous uh, in, in car racing? Yeah, I mean, everything's in car racing, it's down to the, you know, you we have these data analysis things you plug plug into the car so that you can put somebody else, you know, like somebody else's lap together on the computer and then your lap together and you can see, oh, he, he hit the brakes 10 feet later than I did. And that's why he was faster on that lap. I mean, it's like down Interesting. to the wow. thousandth of a second that you can figure out what you're doing wrong to, to slow yourself down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. So we're talking to C.J. Wilson. He's retired Major League Baseball pitcher with, with the Rangers and Angels. He is now owner of C.J. Wilson, about to make his professional debut in racing this weekend. What are you most concerned about going into the weekend? And is analytics going to help you with that in some way? Um, yeah, well, I was just, you know, getting to, being able to watch video with overlaid data of somebody else driving the track. You're able to see, okay, at this corner he's entering – you know, he's going 135 miles an hour, and then he slows down to 80 miles an hour. Okay, I just need to keep that in mind. And then, like, what's the technique for slowing down like that? Is it a gradual slowdown, or is it, like, an immediate slowdown deep into the corner? Right. So you're always looking for placement, you know. And it's, it's, a, it's a game of geometry, you know, really, because the car can only do so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like your street car. You know, when you turn right at a red light, you have to the, – the rules are that you have to stop and you have to, then you have to go, you know, and let somebody else pass. But if there's a green light and you just kind of yank it around the corner, there is a maximum velocity that you'll be able to achieve before you fly off and hit the the center divider right. or go into yeah. cross traffic, right? So we don't have cross traffic, but we have walls and fences and, you know, pedestrians and all that type of stuff to worry about. Um, so in that sense, you know, you're trying to achieve the maximum that the car can achieve, and you're trying to do it all the time. But you have to vary your technique slightly in order to keep the car underneath you. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, you end up, if you try to drive the exact same lap, the tires start getting crappier towards the end of the race. Mm-hmm. And then 
if the tires aren't there and you're and you're thinking that they are there, then you won't make it. You know, CJ, this um, is this so some, there, there are these analogies as you describe this. It almost feels like there are these analogies to what you do as a pitcher, and even the the rubber coming off the tires. You're pitching with a different body in the sixth inning than you were in the first inning. Do you think Completely, that you're? Yeah. Do you think you approach racing differently because of your experience with professional baseball than the other drivers um, do, for example? Yeah, I think I think. Well, I'll put it this way: I think someone with my level of driving experience, like anybody with my level of driving experience, like that hasn't had some sort of background like I've had, is going to struggle to get to the point where I where where all of us want to get to. I think I'm going to have a better advantage because I've just been building my tool set for longer. So it's like I just have more apps, you know, to get things done. <laughs> I have, I've, I've built more processes mentally and, you know, have more support systems. Um, just like being a major league player versus a minor league player, you know. It's, you know, it's like when I, – I, so the, the way I would look at it is everybody's a rookie, right? But the Japanese players that have been playing in Japan for a while, like they transition pretty well to major league baseball because they they're used to major league baseball mm -hmm. you know like where if you're a triple a guy or double a guy and you come up you might have talent but you might not be used to the rigors of the season or travel or whatever and it's like like just on monday i i, I landed at, at heathrow airport at 6 a.m i went straight to the track i hopped in a car i'd never driven and the track i'd never driven um after you know a ton of jet lag and three hours of sleep because there's a crying baby next to me the whole flight and Jeez. i went out there and, and roasted pretty good laps you know in the car um and then i uh you know got in a taxi and and you know went to the airport and flew home so Jeez, like okay uh, because that's how you have to play major league baseball sometimes you show up at 3 a.m and you have to pitch that night you know mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. just have to be able to consolidate your energy conserve your energy and then perform when you're not at your best and mm -hmm. i think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people in life have an issue with is if things aren't at their best how do they how do they perform mm -hmm. and you know, baseball forces you to show up every day because of the schedule. It's it, it's awful. I mean, you're you're playing 29 games a month, right? So there's no off days, and you develop this work ethic that I think I've seen it in my car dealerships where like I show up to work every day consistently, energy, 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 and um and that that brings a certain amount of respect from my coworkers because everybody's going to have good and bad days, but if your variance and your amplitude is like a small degree, a small deviation versus a large one, then you're a better teammate, you're a better employee, you're a better boss, you know, and you're definitely a better driver. So I think all that makes sense and is a skill that you can only develop over time as a professional at something very important, like, you know, being a surgeon or being a lawyer, right. you know, being an entertainer or something like that. And I think right. it, it, you look at a, somebody that's an entertainer, they've got to show up and perform at a concert every night. Otherwise, they suck, and it's obvious to 10,000 people. That's a lot of pressure, you know? So it's like, you know, how many how many 18-year-old kids or, or, you know, veterinarians or, you know, other guys that I'm going to be racing? I don't know who these other guys are at all, you know? This could be I could be racing against the next Michael Schumacher. I have no idea. Right. So what you're saying but, is... It, is is that there's some transferability that's really great. Well, it's personal, though. It's not necessarily like some sort of skill like, oh, I know how to throw a slider, so I know how to turn a steering wheel. It's, it's not so much like that. It's more like, you know, I know how to mentally put myself in a position to be ready, you know, and I know how to mentally put myself in a position to learn. Because it's like when you have a new team that you're playing against, like that you've never played against before, and you've got new players that you don't know intrinsically, and you've got to learn them really fast. That's the same as driving a track that you've never driven. You know, you just have to you have to put yourself into a learning mode um, 
that that'll, that's going to allow you to, to do something. Right. CJ, terrifically interesting. Great, great insights there for us. It's actually pretty sobering uh, and sets a high bar and, and really appreciate your sharing. Wish you the no, best with no the, problem, wish you the best with the racing this weekend. Um, good luck with it all. I yep. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. C.J. Wilson, retired MLB pitcher for the Rangers and Angels, now owner of C.J. Wilson Racing, making his pro debut uh, on the Sebring Raceway this weekend. So, guys. Transferable skill. I love wow, it. Oh, my goodness. It was great. It, it made me feel so bad about coming in here so great. Yeah, you were. Well, my, but, though, I, I, I actually think you <laughs> always I, – I think you're another one of these sort of like, you know, despite – I mean – you know, I know you well enough to know when you're not in a good mood, and definitely this morning you're not in a good mood. But your your performance still the, the, that that there's a still a pretty low deviation in performance. Well, I mean, I mean for better or for worse, I guess you, you could had say. to drag me into this chair kicking, did, and, kicking screaming and screaming like a child, and that's like that's we, not yeah, I mean, professors I, I, I mean, are not exactly we're not on the hot like this. this the is, listeners don't know that you're kind of a diva behind the scenes, <laughs> but once the once the on air light goes on, all of a sudden it's Mister Professional. No, I thought I thought he I, mean, he thought I thought he said some amazing things yeah. there, and he and he said it, and, and he said I mean we don't hear that. And to hear that from a guy who has, who's learned it from experience yeah. and from watching others and trying I love to live. His, it. I, I love his sort of like apps, like you know, yeah, apps toolkit analogy. I got more apps. Yeah. Then he described one of those apps. Yeah, well, yeah. the, the app say, that he's got is is a really super transferable skill. I mean, this idea that you can have the ability to get in there every single day and no matter what's coming, be yeah. at the well, top of your well, game. He's got. I think he's got so much more credibility saying that because he's tried to transfer it. If yeah. it's only about being a baseball pitcher, that's one thing none of us can really relate to but yeah. if he's saying look actually it helps me be a better race car driver you're like oh god maybe it should yeah. help me be a better well radio i mean show i'll host. give an example in our own university there's an enormous amount of time that our athletes student athletes spent on the playing field and it and it absolutely has consequences academically mm-hmm. when you're spending 40 hours a week on the playing field yet they even though they don't have the gpas of some of the the the, the non-athlete students they get terrific jobs, and when you speak to them, they'll say it's because the employers know they have this toolkit yeah. mm-hmm. of the ability to work intensely hard and juggle two, at least two things, if not more, extremely challenging um, experiences, and they just want them to work for them. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what, what C.J. Wilson was telling us. I, I've honed the skill of being at the top of my game 162 games out of a season, 29 days out of the month, in a in the tremendously competitive environment of Major League Baseball, and I can transfer that over to car racing. And yeah, I've never yeah. driven driven a car professionally, but I have this toolkit that allows me to to perform yeah. at this high level. So the, you you think I should have probably told prospective employers that actually, not only was my GPA impressive, but I. Achieve that GPA by staying up till three a.m. playing Doom on oh, most yes, nights absolutely. and stuff like should, that. And so right. I mean, like that was your, your, yeah. <laughs> he has a nuance in there that I think is helpful, which was at least implying that there, of course, there's variation, but you want to reduce that variation as much as possible. He's used the term amplitude, you want as low an amplitude as as possible on, around your performance level. Yeah. So he's not saying you're you're not going to be perfect. I mean, my God. These baseball players do have good games and bad games. They're not always at the exact same level of motivation. But you want to recognize that and you want to reduce it as much as possible. Yeah, and you can really inspire sort of respect in, in your colleagues by essentially like just, you know, because everybody knows that there's going to be variation in whatever's going on in your you know, life as far as energy level, whatever. But if, if you kind of variation in what you – if you are clearly – minimizing the variation in kind of your performance or, or whatever your your kind of approach to them, 
in you know in the context of like that variation of whatever's going on. Yeah, right. That's they impressive. That. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He he discussed. Uh, he implied we didn't actually take it on in our very short interview that this was actually learned skill. It's not something. One That's of the right. things that we often assume mm-hmm. is that person who gets in there and has low variance and is as top of the, you know, excited and ready to go every morning. That's just built into their personality. The implication we were getting from Wilson was that this is something that he's learned yeah. to accomplish. No, I, I mean, I think that's a. I mean, that with, with this particular aspect of, uh, of of performance as well as a lot of other ones, there's always this question of sort of like how much of it is actually learned versus you know there's only a select certain number of people who have who kind of the aptitude yep. for this and 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 a, and a career like professional baseball would select for those people and select a lot of people out i don't know i mean like if somebody like could i basically you know with training and all that be as good as cj wilson at this particular kind of like you know consistency under pressure kind of aspect if you're willing to undergo the training, I mean, yeah. so that's that's part of the. I mean, I'm the... clearly not. It's not a good example, <laughs> yeah. but but that's part of the causality. I'm I mean, coasting. You at have this to have point, the drive. But... I mean, you think about what C.J. Wilson needed to do. What any professional baseball player player needs to do to accomplish that, they have to be determined enough to undergo those challenges day in and day out. I mean, he threw out his arm at age 12, so at age 12 he's already pitching yeah. monumental amounts. Think about what what one has to. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think this. again, the sort of determination. I mean, I, I realize he was being very well compensated throughout this time, but the determination to continue to pitch at going through like what do you say, four elbow surgeries, one back surgery, patella, and knees. I mean, it was yeah, it was, yeah. it was yeah. unbelievable, yeah. and I mean, those are those are each very time. very dramatic procedures, and and and, and each time there's like got to be such a grueling kind of recovery yeah. process for that. Um, and I think that kind of drive to continue to work on your craft in the context of those injuries is something that, again, I'm curious how much of that is sort of a trainable skill, that determination, versus something that some, you know, a subset of the population just kind of have and the other subset, including myself, do not have. And, and you know, <laughs> that's part of the reason I, you know, not a professional athlete in addition to many other, <laughs> many other even more obvious reasons. So how do you all feel about racing? I think those of us who haven't done it and don't follow yeah. it closely don't appreciate all the technical and... and the ge- that was the other part of his sort of discussion that really fascinated me is to sort of like talk about the geometry of like, you know, I'm going I'm going into this turn, it's got this kind of angle, and so I'm allowed, the, the car's allowed to screech a certain amount, but you know, at, at a certain speed, it will go into yeah, the wall and, no matter what and, I do. And their challenge is yeah. to ride that, that threshold. Right, right at the envelope. And yeah. that's the way... That's, it's Audi's challenge on the regular roads too, by the way. <laughs> I do it, right? stream. I do it. But apparently that's the way people talk about as a fighter pilot as well. Yeah. That what what differentiates the best pilots are are is the ability to take it just a little bit closer to the edge. Yeah. They, they, so there's more risk there, but they'll take it a little they'll just take it a little bit further and that allows them to pick a better line. Yeah. Essentially. Now how what is the role of technology in this? At this point, is your computer telling you you can take this curve? Your tires are in such a condition. Your weight of your car is in such a shape. I don't think so. That you can I take it at, 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 so. at eighty-two I, I, instead I mean, of eighty-five. I mean, he, he, he was talking about you know you can watch tape. Yeah, you know, like I, I guess after the fact you can. Or, right. or, or like I don't think it's real time. It's not real mm-hmm. time. I don't think. And I, I it probably I, I, is coming. It probably oh, is coming, so they can tell you. It's like it's almost like they give you a monitor that says that it has, has a band, it's and right you're on the inside of the band, like you can actually go a little further. Out and then it starts raining. Kind of... It starts raining halfway through the race, and presumably the bands all change. That's right. The bands yeah. will change absolutely, and that's what people are doing right now yeah. internally. 
The other piece that really was interesting to me was the the learning tools he talked about, where you over you could overlay basically like a tape of his run with the tape of an optimal run mm-hmm. and kind of compare, okay, I'm breaking earlier, I'm breaking more abruptly. I yeah. mean, just this, that's phenomenal feedback for learning. It yeah. sounds like the optimal system yeah, yeah, yeah. for learning. Yeah. I mean, how would you like that as a, as like a, a in, in a teaching, like you're going to teach a case, you're going to teach a, an idea, you're going to teach regression of the mean yeah. or whatever, and you can overlay like the optimal or an optimal right. and just com- get side by like side. Like we could feedback. actually track how much the students are paying attention. I yeah. could like watch it after the fact. Be like, here's where you lost. Here's them. where you lost them. Here's where actually, you lost this them. This is available. That I actually would like. To, I mean, it would be sobering, but I would like to have that information. And in fact, you're collecting it. You're collecting yeah. it through your eyes and I ears. Am. During I am. I am. That's talk, right. But, but to have That's a better right. measure, we have this with online courses now. Yeah. So you you know you can you you can you can get these metrics out of out of a Coursera for example, which would reveal how long someone stays on a page, yeah. whether they click through or not, what drop off rate you get at various pages, how so, many other windows they have open when they're yeah, having course, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, but I know. I mean, there is Listen, that, there is a lot of helpful information there, no doubt. I love it. It's that mantra we learned from uh, from our guest from Crossover. If you don't measure, you don't get better. Yeah. Although I think he may have phrased it, if you don't, you don't get better if you don't measure, mm-hmm. and that's it. I mean, he's essentially saying if I can, if I the data tells me where I'm could have braked earlier and and how I could have taken the, the track, I watch it, and next time I try to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. We didn't get to hear from him, and he's relatively new to the sport, so we may not know. But how use of that technology varies across teams. Yeah, because if it's like any other sport we cover. It's going to vary a great deal, and some teams will be much more technologically advanced than others. I mean, he hinted at the fact that he, he's probably a little bit more analytical than your average car racer just because of his background and, and, and everything mm-hmm. like that. So I, I would I would guess he's probably kind of, you know, a little ahead of the curve. I, I wanted to sort of ask, I mean, uh, you know, as well, like how much of that, um, you know, age factors into this. I mean, I assume that most people that are starting a career in car racing, it's their first career as opposed to their second successful <laughs> career, right? And so, you know, how, how, how much, you know, like how much older is he than the average sort of rookie? Yeah. And, and whether, you know, whether that, you know, historically has any, like whether age really factors into car racing the way it yeah. would like, you and, know, all and, these other sports. And another way to ask yeah. it is if you're coming in older, yeah. maybe disadvantaged physically, can you, can you make up for it? Can you yeah. substitute technology? Yeah. You know, maybe analytics is kind of the edge that will compensate for that. Right, right. All right, that's been the first half of our show. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us. We have a very interesting guest, Ken Pomeroy, after the break, and then we still have an open open line segment to wrap up the show. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall, our Sirius XM radio studio on Locust Walk. We're at the halfway point. This is uh, Cade Massey hosting this morning with my co-hosts, collaborators, buddies, faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. 
And we've got uh, just off the phone with a terrifically interesting guest, C.J. Wilson, talking racing and the transfer of knowledge and skills from baseball to racing, which is very intriguing. Surprisingly intriguing. Yeah, Surprisingly it's non-intuitive, but, you not, know, not certainly, in, certainly it, it, it was. Provocative. Yeah. Provocative. We're trying to transfer it into the classroom. If you can transfer it from racing and from baseball to racing, maybe we yeah. can transfer yes, it Yes, because we have 29 uh, classes a semester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, in the next half hour, we are delighted to be joined by the very well-known, for very good reasons, Ken Pomroy. Ken is stats guru and creator of KenPom.com. He's one of the foremost analysts in the basketball world, and he's always of great intrigue this time of year to talk college basketball. Ken, welcome to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. We're delighted to have you back on the show. Appreciate you making the time. You're based in Salt Lake City, yes? That's correct, yes. And are you calling from there this morning? I am, indeed. We appreciate always people calling from that part of the country. We know it's a little bit, we've heard, we understand it's a little bit earlier out there this time of day yeah i mean uh with the time change it's uh still dark here so uh that's fine now good to get an early start to the day this time of year well you must be busy what is it what does a day in ken pomeroy's life look like right around the, the ncaa the, the leading up to the, march madness the first yeah. week of the tournament yeah it's pretty it's pretty hectic uh you know as soon as the brackets are announced there's a little bit of uh administrative work to do on the site to uh, get all the games on and the teams and the seeds on there and then uh the rest of the week is a lot of stuff like this, just kind of media stuff. And uh, it's a little, it's kind of an added layer this year because we have uh, the first round games also in Salt Lake City. So uh, there's people coming in that uh, I get to meet with and, and, and see, and, you know, whether it's in the media or, or in the game itself. So uh, there's a lot going on, but it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. What What is your favorite part of the tournament? What What do you what are you most looking forward to once we get under play? I guess we're getting underway now, but they're really in, in full swing tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, I, you know, the, the first couple of rounds are a lot of fun. You kind of sort out the, um, kind of the pretenders from the, the, the real teams that kind of belong and, and want to win a title. And obviously you have the, the first round upsets, which are fun too. And, um, but then you get into later rounds and it's, you know, you have kind of your real, strong teams and the real battles. I think, you know, from a rating standpoint, it's probably most interesting just to get teams from different conferences playing each other again, right. because rating teams, you know, rating the teams during the season is, is not that big a deal, but kind of rating the conferences, you know, you're basically going on games in November and December, so now you get a lot more uh, fresh data coming in and uh, that's always nice. So Ken, as a, as a, when you do ratings, there's this weird thing that happens with games in that even though there's an outcome, it's not definitive. I mean, you could like you could like Illinois State better than Wichita State, but just because one wins doesn't mean they were better, right? So how do you, as an analyst and a sophisticated analyst, how do you think about that? Because you're not really reconciling anything in a single game, right? Yeah, I mean, we learned that uh, the hard way. Well, maybe not the hard way, but we learned it last year when, you know, Villanova, uh, they lost to Oklahoma in the regular season by... 20 points in December at neutral site, and then they play in the NCAA tournament in the Final Four at neutral site, and Villanova won by biggest margin, you know, we've ever seen in a Final Four game, you know, 40-plus right. points. So, um, yeah, so that's, I think, kind of underappreciated in college basketball. You know, the games are, are short, the season's short, and uh, trying to sift through the limited information you have to uh, rate a team uh, can be a real challenge. 
Mm-hmm. So this is a challenge that you're fighting. So the the obviously the, the the NCAA committee has a the playoff committee has a big job. They have to seed the teams, and it's controversial, and everyone has an opinion. We, they've probably gotten better at it over time, and there are more analytics they can draw on to inform these decisions. They historically have liked RPI. This was one of the first numbers they kind of glommed onto before basketball analytics got very um, sophisticated. What does you, that stand for? Yeah, can you tell us about RPI? And you've been kind of you've been cajoling these guys to move beyond it. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how that's gone? Yeah. Um, so the committee, their job is a little bit different than, than my job with my ratings. I mean, they're trying to uh, select and seed teams based on results during the season, you know, still accounting for strength of schedule. And I'm really trying to rate teams based on how good they are, which is, you know, there's a subtle difference there. Um, but for, you know, over three decades, the committee has, has relied on this formula called the RPI, which was developed in 1981. And it is a really primitive formula that uh, combines the team's record, which is with its strength of schedule, um, which, you know, is essentially what the committee wants to do. But it's just a really, it's a primitive formula. It, uh, it doesn't handle home court advantage really in a direct way. It's kind of uh, shoehorned into the formula a little bit, um, and it, the the home court issue doesn't even it's not even used in the strength of schedule component of the formula. Uh, so that's a little odd when when people are talking about a team strength of schedule and the RPI doesn't even consider where the game is played, which is a huge deal, right? Um, in college basketball. So by the way, Ken, this is a great pejorative, a, a primitive formula. I'm kind of enjoying yeah. that for this thirty thirty five year old, thirty six year old. It's uh, it's it's it compared to what's available. That does sound pretty bad. Is it still used extensively, or is there a replacement? No, it is still the the backbone of what the committee does. So when they when they meet in their room, they uh, and they deliberate about you know who's getting in and what seeds teams are getting. Um, they have a, a computer in front of them, and on the screen is basically uh, a database of. Uh, teams and then what their accomplishments, but it's all based on the RPI. So if, uh, uh, you know, you beat uh, Wake Forest and they're ranked 36 in the RPI, I mean, that's what shows up, that you beat the 36th ranked team in the country. So uh, they have access to uh, to other rating systems. I mean, they have access to whatever they want, but by access, it's really like they have to go out and get it. Um, this whole computer system is, is you know, feeding them data based solely on the RPI. So it's really easily easy to get. Is You know, the RPI is easily accessible. The other stuff they have to kind of work at. So it stands to reason that they're basically depending on the RPI. You know, probably 95% of their decisions are, are wow. guided by that formula. Still that much. That's remarkable. Now, you wrote recently in on Slate that they the NCAA had invited, had invited you and a few other folks to come in and talk about new metrics. Are you optimistic that they're going to finally start moving on past the RPI? I mean, people have been complaining about it for a while. Yeah, I, I'm, I am optimistic. Uh, just, I mean, the mere fact that they invited people out to have this discussion, I think, uh, is a good sign. Like, I don't think they'd do that just for, for fun or they didn't really uh, have uh, an idea of what they wanted to do. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's invited a few of us out, you know, guys that uh, had developed rating systems. And, um, you know, we just had a kind of a really open discussion about what, um, you know, what we think should be done, you know, what our rating systems were about. Uh, There's some, you know, philosophical stuff, you know, that I alluded to earlier, kind of dealing with the issue of, uh, you know, a results-based system, which is what the RPI is and what uh, 
other systems out there are like, and then predictive type systems, which is what my system's like, and kind of the role that, that each might play um, in the selection process. So I think it's going to happen. It's just there's so many people involved in the process. You know, there's the NCAA, there's 351 Division One coaches. Um, there's a lot of opinions out there, and, and trying to come up with something that will get buy-in from the coaching community, I think, and the athletic directors, um, it's going to take a little while. So I don't know if it's going to happen for this upcoming season, but certainly by the uh, 2019-2020 season, I think we will see uh, wow. a new system implemented. So it, it, how, how might they reconcile this tension between analytics that focus on the power rankings, if you will, the predictive scores versus rewarding what they have done. And this is a very general issue in analytics. So it comes up in college football all the time. And it, I mean, c- can you ever really render it down to one number unless people agreed on some kind of formula or something? Do you, I mean, how do you see them reconciling those two very different ways of looking at a team? Yeah. I mean, I, I have some concerns about turning it into one number as well. You know, part of the issue is you're dealing with uh, the people that are making these decisions. You know, on, on the basketball committee are basically all athletic directors, and um, some of them may have some sort of quantitative background, but most of them don't. And they want it as simple as possible. So, right, right. So you might have to sacrifice, you know, some sort of accuracy for for simplicity. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, um, I, I mean, I think the general opinion in the room was that uh, at least for the selection process. By and large, you should be leaning on more results-based metrics. You know, there's always this concern that if you include metrics that use margin of victory, like my system and, and others, that that might affect how the game is played. You know, a team's up by 15 with a minute to go. Maybe they don't put the walk-ins in. You know, they keep trying to right. score. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's a huge problem, but the perception is certainly there. Maybe that's enough to yep. matter. Um, and, I, you know, and I agree also, that, uh, you look at any other sport that you know that has – playoffs i mean they're they're all based on wins and losses you know there's very few situations where uh scoring margin comes into play and there's some tiebreakers where it might come into play but uh you want the result of the game to matter of course i mean the the point the point of sports is to to win and you want that to actually have some consequence at least uh further down the line i I wanted to ask you a question since right now the 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 uh current system doesn't isn't so predictive it isn't so performance-based it's more results-oriented that must lead to divergences. So divergences in, say, with your your uh, power rankings, other power rankings, and the rankings. How many are there in, say, the first round, typically? Yeah. So how many how many seedings have they sort of like messed up, basically? <laughs> which leads to a, which leads to a, a crossover. And, so, and which which one yeah. specifically? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't bet, but maybe our listeners do. Yeah, I mean the the one of the biggest that we've ever seen. Uh, was Wichita State this season, who uh, was eighth in my system. And you look at other predictive systems, I think you'll find them in the top 15 at least. Um, and they got a 10 seed. So uh, you know, there's four regions uh, that are seeded 1 to 16. So a 10 seed sort of implies around the 40th best team. And they're, in, you know, in reality, probably around the 10th to 15th best team. Wow. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't mean the committee messed up necessarily. It's just they're looking at the results of Wichita State in a win loss form. and which I'll say did not have any wins against the top 50 teams in the country. So uh, the committee has determined that that is a very important thing to them. And right. based on that, uh, which State did not deserve better than a 10 seed. But, um, 
Yeah, and, that by far, I think, is the, the biggest outlier. And there are consequences, of course, because that means they're going to get a two seed in the, in the second round, which in this case is expected to be Kentucky. So that's a much tougher path as a 10 than yeah. you would as a, as a six or a five. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's you know, another thing that we discussed in that meeting was do you want to, you know, you can select teams maybe based on results, but do you want to seed teams based on ability? I mean, that's interesting. Uh, that, yeah, that has some weird implications as well because, okay, Wichita State, you just barely get in the field. And if you believe they're like, let's say, the 12th best team in the country, you know, now they, they get a three seed. Like, would that? Right. That be fair, right, guess, right, right. You know, yeah, some odd things there. Well, so I mean, you, we think of this as as Wichita's bad luck that's going to have to run into t- Kentucky, but it's actually Kentucky's bad luck. Oh, totally. That, that's true. That's they're going to have to run into it's Wichita. A, it's a disservice to Kentucky for sure, and it is just bad luck that they end up in the same region with the. Yeah. What what Ken is basically saying is like the best ten seed of all time, mm-hmm. according to the numbers. Um, we're talking to Ken Pomeroy, of course. Ken is a stats guru and creator of KenPom dot com. You can also follow him on Twitter at at Ken Pomeroy. Um, Ken, it, it strikes me that this deviance, deviation between seeding teams, selecting them and seeding them according to what they've accomplished versus your approach, which is evaluating them for what they're going to do in the future, leads to this interesting variation in the tournament. In some ways, the tournament would be less interesting if they seeded them 1-64 to 64 according to your ranking. Yeah, right? I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I, w- I would assume that the NCAA's kind of goal, I suppose, you know, if, if, you, if outcome completely matched, you know, the process, their goal would be that the higher, you know, the, the, the better seed won every single game, which would make for a pretty boring tournament, actually, right? Yeah, no question. Although I think even, you know, even if you... Right. Magic. I mean, I'll, outcome, yeah. outcomes, the, the variation in outcomes still going to save you. It's never going to, yeah. even if you somehow you did correctly more. seed them in some, but you know, whatever here's, correct here's, is. Here's one thing you can say. Yeah. They would always prefer that the higher seed team, the better seeded team is the favorite. Yeah. And, and that's not def- the case. And you're not going to get that with the current right. system. Right. And that adds some interesting variation to the, that I don't think they intend it, but it's like an unintended consequence is that there's this extra source of variation right. in the matchups. Yeah. Is but, that is that fair, Ken? Yeah, that's fair. The only thing I would maybe correct you on is that I don't, I don't know that the committee desires that the higher seeded team is favored. Like they clearly, clearly don't care about that. Otherwise, right. they would, they would not have made Wichita State a ten seed. Wichita State is a pretty heavy favorite over the seven seed in their opening game. And uh, I mean, anybody who follows college basketball knew that was going to happen. So, uh, so I don't think they care too much about that. But you're correct. Like if if they seeded it that way, uh, you still variation would save you like. Team seated between five and twelve. There's really, even if you seated them absolutely correctly according to the Vegas spread, uh, the variation between those teams, their ability is much smaller than uh, the noise. I guess you could say in terms of an individual college basketball game, uh, in terms of each team's performance. Right. Well, you could compare percentage of up- upsets can, using one metric versus another. So right now, I think we're looking at typically they're about twenty five percent of all the games are upsets mm-hmm. in the sense that yeah. the lower ranked team beats the higher ranked team in, in the sense of the tournament rankings. I wonder what it would be if it used actual favorites, right? Actual right, Vegas right, right. favorites or Kang Palm favorites or whoever system you want to use. It'd probably be a little a little fewer, presumably. Ken, we we talk a lot about good power ranking systems and good predictive analytics. To do this, if we if we just if we just embrace this notion of actually we want to seed according to what they've accomplished, it's a very different analytics exercise. 
what how might one build a good analytic system that captures what they've accomplished, what they've done, as opposed to trying to do what you and I usually try to do, which is some kind of predictive thing? It's not yeah, obvious. It's not uh, obvious to me. No, it's uh, actually not obvious to me. To me. <laughs> Part of the reason why. I, you know, I've gotten into the predictive side is because I really just want to know how good a team is. And I think it's a little more arbitrary to, uh, you know, determine how, what a team has accomplished. Um, you know, one of the issues with the RPI is that the strength of schedule component is really kind of uh, shallow. Like, it just looks at uh, an opponent's record, and it looks at the record of the opponent's opponents. Um, that's the only thing it looks at, whereas, you know, in a kind of a more modern system – the strength of schedule component goes to infinite depth. So it looks right. at how the opponents played, how their opponents played, how those opponents played, and it keeps going until the, the routine stabilized. So um, that's one way to do it. Um, there's a, another approach that uh, kind of looks at what a team's, uh, like say the 40th best team, what would their record be against, uh, their expected record be against the schedule they played, you know, based on the strength of that schedule right. compared to their actual uh, schedule and kind of get an idea of, you know, uh, did they have more wins than expected based on that schedule or fewer wins? And that's kind of another way to put uh, each team's schedule maybe on the same level, at least of, uh, of the 40th best team or whatever baseline team that you uh, choose to use. Yep. yep. I, th- I think one of the big things, though, is, is beyond wins and losses. I mean, when we talk about what a team has done, do you take into account, I mean, you, you touched upon this earlier, do you take into account margin of victory when you talk about what a team has actually done? And I think that's I mean, I, I could argue either way on that. Yeah, I could too. I mean, at, at some point, just to like make the verbiage consistent, um, yeah, t- you know, typically I prefer to systems that don't use margin of victory is looking at what you know what a team has accomplished. You know, strictly wins and losses, and then right. if you if you are using margin of victory or other things besides wins and losses, then you're looking at basically how a team has played. I think that's kind of the way I, I like to make mm. that distinction. What about things like? Injuries, um, do, do, do should should you account for that if in this accomplishment? Yeah, so that's a great point. Like, and that's the point I tried to bring up at the meeting was, you know, so the the committee pretty much you can tell they lean on accomplishment, but yet they still talk about things that indicate they want to know how good a team is. Like they'll they'll talk about injuries, you know, or a coach's suspension and discount games where right uh, right those things are occurring. Um, they'll also talk about. Like sometimes, you know, I've heard the like the committee uh, chairperson say at the end of the uh, selection show, they'll say, well, you know, at the end of the day, it just comes down to us looking at two teams and just our gut, you know, who would win that game. Well, that's you're also looking, you know, yeah, talking about how good a team that's is at shifting, that point. So, for sure. So the committee kind of gets a little mixed up, and I don't think they – that was probably the most productive part of this meeting. I don't think the committee always understands exactly what they're doing. They don't understand the dichotomy right. that we're talking about. And uh, right. I think they have a better understanding of that after that meeting. That's awesome. One, one other element. What about non-stationarity? So do they – A team that gels, for example, well, halfway yeah, through the do, season? Do you count, do you, do you count a, a win over a Power 5, Top 20 team or whatever the same if it happens in November as if it happens in February? Yeah, and the committee used to have this criteria uh, where they, uh, in the at least in their RPI uh, readout on their computer, where they would see a team's record in their last 10 games. And so that kind of implied that they did care about right. uh, more recent performance. Uh, they got rid of that, and they're, so they talk about now, you know, they look at the whole season. So there's that issue. They basically try to 
apparently look at the whole season and not care if a team is hot lately. You know, the other issue with the injuries is, like, it's great to try to account for that, I guess, on some level. But usually it's, you know, just looking at the team that, that had the injury. They don't – I don't think they have any way of considering, you know, hey, what if uh, this other team played a team that had an injury right. and got a win that maybe they wouldn't have got otherwise. I mean, that's a lot of information to consider. And mm-hmm. another reason why I think they should just throw injuries out the window. It's like, again, you know, you look at any other sport, I mean – Adam Silver is not going to give the L.A. Clippers a break this year because, you know, they had some key injuries during the season. They're not going to discount right. those, those losses that they have. They're going to look right. at the, the season as a whole and, and go from there. Right. So, Ken, you've talked about this meeting. Can you tell us a little bit more? It's kind of fascinating, actually. One, I want to give the NCAA props for asking you guys in, but tell us a little bit about how that went. I mean, it feels, in, in my mind, I've got this, like, congressional hearing thing where there's a panel of the the, the committee at this this high table, and you're at a bunch of microphones, and there's a set of you, you analytics types. How did it actually go? And how did you think about what you're going to say in that situation? Like, how are you going to influence these guys in that situation? Yeah, well, first of all, it wasn't nearly as, as stressful as a congressional hearing. <laughs> the layout was a little similar, but uh, it really was just kind of a free-flowing uh, conversation, and I absolutely do give the NCA a lot of credit. You know, the RPI is used in a bunch of different NCA sports, and to my knowledge, there's no other sport that is really kind of considering change. So, uh, so a lot of credit to the, the men's basketball side at the NCAA. Um, you know, because it was such an open-ended meeting, there wasn't – I think we all had, like, a lot of thoughts that we've either expressed publicly or just, you know, thought about internally in terms of rating teams and how the NCAA could maybe do a better job. And, uh, and so, you know, some of that stuff has just been building up for years and years and uh, – came out so uh, there wasn't uh, you know the need necessarily to prepare some sort of uh, you know Gettysburg address or some sort of influential speech that'll change the, the stands of history it was, uh, it was just a nice conversation you know we we shared our expertise the NCA shared what you know kind of what they need on their end uh, there are other people in the room that uh, had their own expertise that they brought to the table and uh, it was just a really really fun and, and productive discussion mm-hmm that's terrific. I hope something comes of it, uh, even if it's only making them more apparent of the kinds of conflict they ha- that they have in their own reasoning. So, Ken, we, we'd be remiss to let you go without getting some of your insight into the 2017 bracket. What do you think we should be paying attention to as we get play underway? What, what, where do you think the right, pockets of value might be? Are there teams that you really have your eye on? Is Wichita you- State going to the championship? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is a really fun tournament because uh, there really isn't a, an obvious favorite. Um, you know, at the beginning of the season, we thought, like, Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky or Kansas or maybe even Villanova. Like, those are, I think, the five, like, favorites at the beginning of the season with Duke leading the way. And uh, as the season has progressed, you know, none of those teams have really stood out. Um, so it is wide open. Uh, Gonzaga is number one in my ratings and uh, number one in a few other predictive ratings. They're a really difficult team to rate just because they've played uh, in a really kind of weak conference the last couple months. So, so we don't really know how good they are, except that they're pretty good, and they deserve to be mentioned kind of in the list of favorites. And so there's really, I think, at least six teams that could, you know, you could make a case to, to win it all and, and have a really good case. So, so, uh, so it's interesting to see how things play out in that regard. Those original five favorites plus Gonzaga, those are, those are the six that are still kind of considered the heaviest weights? Those would be my six. Okay. Uh, uh, there's other people, you know, who are talking about teams like Arizona and UCLA from the Pac-12 who are actually rated much lower in a lot of predictive systems because the Pac-12 was pretty weak this year. Right. Um, 
Right. And they didn't, you know, they didn't really dominate the conference. So other people will make the claim for those two teams. So you can, you know, you can make the list eight probably of teams that you're going to hear about. And that's okay. a much bigger list than you usually hear this time of year. Right, right, right. I did see that someone ran their numbers, maybe BPI, maybe ESPN's BPI. And they said the, the favorite, their favorite, I think was Villanova, but only, but only like, I don't know, 18% or something or 16%. They said it was the lowest percentage chance of winning the tournament of any favorite in their, in their history. And which is probably yeah. short. BPI's history is probably short, but still, in, in recent years, it's the lowest likelihood of winning of any favorite they've seen. Yeah, it might have even been uh, five thirty-eight. I think maybe that ran that. But uh, is that right? It could, yeah, it could be five thirty-eight. Uh, definitely record. does have Villanova as kind of their their pick, I guess, when the tournament. But yeah, mm-hmm. the the odds on uh, the probability on that, I think, is less than fifteen percent. So, Ken, you know, it's it's could you do one one something similar to what you talked about with strength of schedule? Because it's not just the best teams; it's the path they have to go through. And who, if you if you evaluated the paths, you would come up with pretty interesting variation, presumably. So, you know, how is Gonzaga's path compared to the other ones? How is Duke's path compared to the other twos? That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as far as what's interesting is actually as far as winning a national title, the path is uh, maybe a little bit uh, overrated in terms of its impact. Is that um, right? Yeah, I'm always like bewildered every year. I, I I create you know a list of the top teams that have the best chances, and so often it basically mirrors like the order of my rating. So for instance, like Wichita State is the eighth best team in my rating, and they have the eighth best chance to win it all. I mean, I I do think I'm ra- overrating them a bit, but just assuming they were the eighth best team, uh, they do have the eighth best chance to win it, despite the fact that they're a ten seed and they have to go through Kentucky, and obviously that's going to be a difficult game. But once they if they get past Kentucky, then the the uh, path opens up a little bit. And uh, so, right. you know, there are regions that are tougher than others and paths that are tougher than others, but uh, the, the, the effect on the chance of a team winning at all is, is not all that sensitive to that. That's, that's really interesting. I, didn't, I would not have expected that. Pre- presumably that says something about two things. One, maybe they're seeding it reasonably well. And two, there's just a ton of uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, once you get to the like, like Sweet Sixteen or the Elite Eight, I think it's probably just coin flips from there on in, right? Basically, it's to some extent it's close, extent, but uh, I, th- I yeah, think I think mean, mathematically the reason for it is is the uh, it's not distrib- it's not the rankings, it's the distribution in the quadrants that'll that'll create the uh, the exchangeability, which is what he was which is what he being obser- essentially observing. So was, you don't have to get the the numbers right within a rank, but as long as you don't make one bracket a lot one tougher quarter of the bracket the a lot one. tougher than the other yeah. then you'll get this balance oh interesting so that's okay. that's the mathematics behind that okay very interesting ken we're down to just a few minutes and everyone is kind of focused on two simple things about the bracket first round upsets and final four can we can we get you on record for first round upsets and final four sure sure uh yeah as far as upsets, I don't know how how big of an upset we want to talk about but we're not um, going to be impressed if you give us a bunch of nines <laughs> I mean, I think for for like the inevitable five twelve upset, I like Middle Tennessee right. uh, over Minnesota. Okay. Um, for maybe a, a an upset going deeper into the bracket, I like uh, whoever wins the Michigan Oklahoma State game. Uh, it's a seven ten game featuring two really high powered offenses. I think whoever wins that game could you know win a couple more games and possibly end up in the Elite Eight. So uh, okay, so you're short that, Louisville. All right, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> So multiple, multiple enter like. multiple brackets, taking both sides of that would be a good strategy. All right. Good, good. And then what about here in a couple of weekends? Who are we going to be left with when we get to Phoenix? 
Well, I'm going to go with uh, two one seed, Villanova and Gonzaga. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I'll go with Kentucky out of the South region. And my uh, my dark horse will be uh, Purdue with a four seed out in the Midwest. All right. Where does Purdue come from? Where do they come from? What do you mean? Where in your, why, why are you riding why? Purdue that far? They come from West Lafayette, Indiana. Yeah, they do. <laughs> there we Thank go. Thank you. Very confusing. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> you can use that in your bracket. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, what, what about their performance uh, that you're adding to that suggests that they have a chance to be a Final Four? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you there's a lot of logic to it. They're you know, 15th ranked in my system, so they're kind of an appropriate four seed. But uh, you know, that, that side of the bracket is pretty weak. I don't like Louisville. Kansas is the weakest one seed. And they're in that region. So there is an opening for uh, kind of a, a lower seed to, to get in there and produce pretty balanced, good inside-outside balance. I like teams like that. So, uh, so that's the reason to go with them. That's great. All right. Write it down, folks. Ken Palm, Villanova, Gonzaga, Kentucky, and Purdue. Purdue. That sounds good. Ken, listen, man, I know you've got a lot going on this week. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. You bet. That's Ken Pomeroy. You can follow him at KenPalm.com or Twitter at Ken Pomeroy. Always interested to talk to him, especially this time of year. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. I should always wake up to this song, actually. Welcome back to 1984. (laughs) Wharton Moneyball here. Van Zalen. Van, Van Zalen. Who's Van Zalen? Van Halen's Van jump. Van Halen. Van, Z- Van Halen. Jump. New Year's Eve. David Lee Roth. New Year's Eve, 1984. Debuted on MTV. Happen to remember that. That's Dion Simpkins on soundboard. Sound engineer. Long time putting up with us. Long suffering, Dion Simpkins. And not just because he's an Eagles fan. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. This is Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy well, Shane local Jensen. Local sports dig there. It's, it's cruel in the middle of the off season when they can do nothing about it. Dion can do lots about it. Yeah. I don't know why I'm exposing myself to that. So this is Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics every uh, Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. one 942 7866. You can also email us, Matt Johnson, our producer, sitting in a wool cap waiting for your email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Is it cold in that control room? I don't understand. It's a fashion statement, Cade. It's it's what the youngins wear. Take your your fashion tips from Dion, Matt, and get yourself some orange Beats by Dre. They look better than that wool hat you're wearing. It's actually a rerun of old, old 1960s. For the is that when, right? That when is that what's going yeah. on? All right. I think that's what it is. All right, fellas, we got open lines. We are just off the phone with Ken Pomeroy, which is great. Took us into the NCAA basketball world, which is going to kind of dominate the ESPN land and many, um, college, many college basketball fans' lives for the next two weeks. But there are other sports going on around the world. For example, professional baseball. There is professional baseball being talked about. We actually made a rule change. In professional baseball, we. while wow, what's it with the we this morning? You know, yeah, it's really it's 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 an odd tick. Um, um, yeah, probably need to erase it. We actually we didn't have a chance to we as a, as a group didn't have a chance to discuss it. They ended the intentional walk as a actual. Um, yeah, I'm bummed about that. I, I, I'm I'm sure Kate is laughing. No, no, I actually yeah, am bummed I, about I, it. Really? I don't I don't like the rule change. I don't either. 
So tell um, me about why you well, like baseball it. fans by nature don't like rules changes because <laughs> I, I mean a they, I mean let's let's the intentional walk is 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 something to sort of like you know is often employed in high tension situations when a pitcher is kind of struggling and I, I the dynamic I like about the intentional walk and I'm not even sure this is backed up by empirical evidence. But I think it's actually hard for a pitcher to transition back. Like once he has to actually has to throw four pitches out, egregiously outside the zone, it's actually hard for the pitcher. It's an extra level of difficulty for the pitcher to transition back to throwing strikes. And they've it removed like that such challenge. To me. Is that possibly true? Is that Shane Jensen talking? Are you a statistician? It's hard to separate because he is a statistician. Actually, it, it, I mean, I think <laughs> I think it is. I don't think it's just. I, I I think it is actually true that pitchers tend to struggle in a pitch in a at bat after an intentional walk. That said, is that true? Really? Yeah. Um, condition for all the stuff you can. Well, no, for? no, 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 no. Well, just sort of on. marginally. So yeah, I mean, I, build in the you, that does not you know build that little, that, that insight a, is a they probably were struggling before intentional the intentional walk, walk as well. Right, right, yeah, right, that's right. right. So. Um, I don't know, but I mean, don't take it out. Were, of, don't take I it out. Of the, gonna, I thought you liked the theater of it or something. Well, the there's theater some is theater nice. to it, and, and there has there's been some theater. There's to some it. well-documented um, examples of a batter swing, a batter actually, actually jumping out and uh, and and hitting the ball. Well, that's fun. Yeah, which is terrific. Gary Sanchez for the Yankees did it. I challenge it, you to find a YouTube and send it to me. Miguel like Cabrera did one uh, no, he, uh, last year in September. Miguel Cabrera, I think, had like a game wing and single off an intentional walk. No, yep. Well, that's reason enough it not is, to do it. And, and also, right. just think now about the wait, wait a second. I was giving you this awesome <laughs> yeah, strategy you're, you're motivation, and you just seize on that? Oh, for sure. But also, listen, let's go back to baseball classic movies. The Bad News Bears. Let, that was that very first one that was... Now you have my attention. Now you have your, Okay, so you, so you had this, this this druggie that they had gotten. Who was, he, and, he was and a it, cool kid, He right? was a cool kid. Totally cool kid. who was always into crime. Don't, and, don't focus on the druggie. Um, he was I'm a not, cool I'm kid. Not. Okay, that's legal now. So let's go back to the things that are still illegal. Stealing. And... So they tried to pitch around him with an intentional walk, and the yeah. manager Walter Matho says, "Get out there and reach for it," even yeah. though they're trying to pitch around oh, you. And fantastic. he goes and he reaches for it, fantastic. and he hits it. But the the purpose of it was to speed the game. And if you just calculate it's, how it's much like you're minute. speeding the game, it's a minute. It's the not even of a this minute new rule change, of this new yeah. rules to speed the game. And there's only one of them every other game, so it's it's practically an inconsequential right, change. Right, and right. compared yeah. to actual changes that would speed up the game, which prevent the batter like, from leaving the, the batter's box eight times yeah. during an at-bat, right. forcing the pitcher to actually get get down and throw the ball, yeah. preventing the manager from coming out twice and taking a very long time to, yeah. to starting, make Starting it. extra innings with a man on second base? Well, okay, now that's Oh, a, my no, goodness. No, 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 no. Yes, now that's, that's no, changed. No, 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 no. no, no now you get, can get behind. That's a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's no good. Okay, I'm sorry. Start this second inning with a man on second base. Oh, God. Start well, every other inning with the man on second base. How's that? That's, I mean, that's intriguing. That's that, intriguing. That's spoken like a real football yeah. man who doesn't, where yeah. there's no history in the game. And, what about, what about records outlawing, don't matter. outlawing shifts? People no, are talking that, about outlawing shifts. They have, have to discuss that. that. I think but that's I think horrible, right? No, that's horrible. that is horrible. I, I, in fact, I look forward to sort of like, you know, it adds the, a this, world of, of, this world that we live in now where there's so many hitters shifted on dramatically. And I think there's sort of going to be like this counter-revolution where hitters are going to start employing bunting. means of get bunting, yeah. etc. Means of getting around. I think it's going to open up a whole other level of strategy right. for a very strategy-based sport already. I, I'm really excited about it. Me right. too. And there's an definitely would freedom not want to, to imagine that. to tell the, the, the outfielders And where I think they can the play. extra strategy of occasionally swinging at like an intentional uh, walk <laughs> pitch okay. that I'm, has been taken away from us. I'm with that's you sad. Now. I'm, All right, I'm good. We've converted sad. you. I'm sad about the intentional walk. You've, yeah. you've you've won me over. 
but it took irrational drama. Not no, that's not right. I felt like my my original rational argument, though not most totally empirical. You know what? Not compelling. Apparently, I think he's a psychologist, and I think he recognizes that a professional baseball player is able to throw four pitches out of the zone and still be able to come back in and throw strikes. He's able to, but it just adds a little extra, like you know, challenge to it. Yeah. All right. I know uh, it's hard for y'all to think beyond baseball, but are there any other sports going on? Or, or I mean, there is basketball. The NCAA. We did talk about that. We're right we in continue. free agency series season for NFL football. So, so we should probably Shane, get back uh, to there that. There are some big contracts. Sean, you want to talk about them? Shane is still. I can't. I can't. I, can. I, I need. I need an he's intervention. He's still glowing. He's still glowing <laughs> over, the, over the Patriots' victory. I, I I open up my day by listening, like finding some like podcast of the day after the Super Bowl that I haven't listened to yet, <laughs> and just listening to it. It's ridiculous. And then I and then I uh, like. Search for podcasts of what's going on, you know, at the combine. Is I've, I've turned into Eric Bradlow, <laughs> and the combine specifically for NFL football. Well, actually, let's and talk I'm not about sure, the combine. I can't handle it. I don't know how so, Eric does it for every sport. So Shane, how about the combine? Did you watch the combine? Or was, I didn't. Actually was watch there the anything out of the combine? There. Is there? Do we know anything about the combine? Does it really have any predictive value? Yeah, it has some predictive value. I mean, you know, speed. Speed is correlated with success. Sure, but, but we know that. But, I mean, it's just it's, it's above over and beyond. It's overvalued. Speed is no, no, no. The physical. I mean, I think. You know, almost anybody, I, I've done some research in this myself, most people would agree that the sort of physical aspects that are measured at the combine become overvalued by the time the draft rolls around. So, so you know, if, if you want to sort of take, you know, all, all of your combine performance versus, you know, the other performance like college-based performance, the combine yeah. is overvalued for most positions. So does it add – I mean, so we know that obviously it speed matters. Value. But does it add value that really matters? I mean, yeah, so I've watched it your does. college career. We have all kinds of information on you, and now I want to draft, and you have some great combine scores. Is is historically it does matter? That... Yeah, like like so. So to put this in kind of a statistical term, you know, if if, if, if you know a model Residual where you a, a, mo- a model where you just built off NFL performance just based off college and excluded combine would not do as well as if you included both college and combine. But if you had to choose between combine or college as the one <laughs> thing to include, you choose college. Mm-hmm. Also, you can ask what does the draft value. And which of yeah. those? And, and the drafted, the draft is. Mu- I mean, the draft is much more predicted by com- combine relative compared to what NFL performance is predicted by combine. Right. So the so combine the, so the draft- is more related to draft. So, so that is kind of the you know. So, in other words, draft overvalues combine exactly. It's, exactly. it's predictive, but the draft yeah, overvalues right. it relative to college performance. Right. So that's, we're just we're just saying generally across all positions. Of course, yeah, it varies. Right. It varies by position. Yeah. But. You know, some, the guys can also underperform at the combine in ways that grab people's attention. So yeah, guys can come out, you know, not as Tom Brady can look kind of skinny and slow, and Roy, <laughs> yeah, that's really predictive. drop down the drop down the uh, draft boards. So speed scares people off of off of some some players, yeah. and, and some positions actually do need speed. So safety, for example, is one that that guys can do very well in college without having the speed that they need to perform it in that position and so we've had very successful safeties who drop dramatically when people get timed when they get timed um just as 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 one example but broadly it's overvalued and and speed is an interesting one psychologically because it can be rendered so precisely that you've got this you've got this one number you can measure it out people measure it out basically to the hundreds and that gains a lot of attention now you can compare a guy who's like four three two versus four three nine and you get kind of 
you put too much weight on this relatively small number. But yeah. because it can be measured so precisely, it's available for the weight. Yeah, and I think that's reason one of the reasons. Be, be, because it seems people, I think, in their minds, very this, is, uh, this must come up so much in your research, the fact that people sort of confound precision of measurement with actual objectivity Correct. and Correct. accuracy, right? Correct. And, and, and ultimately weight because yeah. of the precision. So you can think about they, they ought to, to counterbalance that, put some traits that matter but are talked about categorically or yeah. qualitatively, that that would try to quantify those. So, for example, hands. You know, very important for a receiver to have good hands. And for, you know, from the beginning of football, that's never been something that's quantified. Well, there are ways to quantify that so they could put guys on these jugs machines where they're catching yeah. these balls and could come up with a precise number. And if they would do that and if, they would, if that would become a norm, then it would counterbalance some of the emphasis on these other traits that can be objectively measured yeah. so precisely. Yeah. Co- coming sort of like out of the draft, you know, t- discussing the draft and actual sort of, you know, the free agency uh, that's been happening uh, in the NFL, I think one of the most intriguing things that's happened so far this off season is we've actually kind of gotten a value on what a, an actual monetary value on a second-round draft pick, right? Because uh, Cleveland essentially traded $15 million for a second-round draft pick. Well, the actual trade was for Brock Osweiler yeah. and a second round draft pick, and then they take on his fifteen million dollar contract. But they they're, they're looking it's looking like they're not even going to play Brock Osweiler, right? They so may trade him, they may release him. Who knows? So there were uh, there were three picks involved. Yeah. You can kind of render it down to a second round, um, but uh, that a couple things that go against us saying that's the exact number. One, there's some residual value of Osweiler. Even if they don't use him, they might True. Move, they they might may be able to exchange him. him for some amount of picks. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, so it's an upper bound on the value of a second-round draft pick. Well, subject to market. I mean, yeah. this is – it's an imperfect market. There were only a few players that could have even been involved in this transaction. Yeah. A, few, a few teams, I mean. And so – it's a little tough to say this now is the market value. It was. That the, would it seem was, a little high, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a little it, def- high. it definitely feels a little high. But one way to think about it is it's almost costless to the Browns because they have so much. There's such a gap between their current payroll and the minimum they have to spend, and there is a minimum mm-hmm. that you can think of the opportunity cost of those dollars being zero because yeah. they're spent. You're yeah. just gonna have, you have to figure out a way to spend them. So they so it's it's so that it's might really be that's an upper bound, money. but it's a very big upper bound. Yeah, I, I don't. I, 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 more, I think it's the 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 upshot from that transaction is that it was done at all. It's yeah. not the precise number. It's that here's this idea that that you can re- basically buy a draft pick. It's really kind of from baseball. It's much more of a moneyball move. Football yeah. doesn't do things like this. Um, in fact, football has an outlier that that you can't you can't buy players. You can't you can't buy picks straight away. Yeah, and so. It's they had to kind of. This is to, the closest we've come to essentially purchasing a pick, which yeah. is one of the more. Notable by things. the way, you can't do that in baseball at all. There's no purchasing picks and trading them. Baseball's draft is people dump, dump contracts. So this, well, yeah. I mean, this baseball you kind of essentially dumping. do because yeah. you you can. I mean, baseball it's not completely set in stone because draft uh, picks are used as compensation for free agent signings, leaving and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, they they do move around, but you can't you can't say I'll I will trade you my first pick for your yeah. second, so, third, so and fourth what, round. What is getting exchanged when they dump contracts? Because this happens all the time in baseball, right? You get a team that is willing to take on a guy, take on a contract, essentially. So I mean, there's just it's well, almost all, it's just a trade up. Trade. You know, I mean, you can trade a person, you can trade a, a lar, you know, a, a very high paid good person for a bad 
low paid person and that's just sort of the deal that is done essentially mm-hmm. and and you're essential you know it, it it's the way in which baseball teams kind of subtly buy players mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if you've got a bad contract but the player's actually still pretty good you, the yankees will take them in midseason yeah 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 and this it happens in basketball that there's mm-hmm. all this cap management in basketball yeah. where teams will move players to 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 lesser teams who don't really have any interest in the player but they have the capacity and the cap to take him mm-hmm. and so they, they they get other things in exchange for this that's right um the the it's it's intriguing because it's the browns because they are you know they have deep podesta mm-hmm. moneyball fame deep podesta yep. is an exec with the and browns. it is kind of a moneyball or you know the closest thing to a football process move right 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 so I mean, they've been accumulating picks. They've been accumulating picks at a greater rate than any other team in mm-hmm. the NFL. And I hope they trade Selvrum for Jimmy Garoppolo, but we'll see. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, so, that's that's the hope. And so this is uh, speaking of New England team, uh, yeah, team tendencies because the rich need to get richer. <laughs> so well, the the strategy here is they're going to trade in a uh, a backup quarterback. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, the the it's 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 an odd off season where the backup quarterback, the New England Patriots, is one of these guys that's being the most discussed, right? Because he is available. Um, though the pa- Patriots, I think, have all the leverage in this situation because they could just roll into the next season with him as the backup, and you know, yep. that might not be the worst Wait, so move. Who's going to replace Brady? I mean, well, he's only... Brady's going to play for another five years. Okay. No, I don't. I mean, you I mean, want to put some money you know, on I mean, that? Well, no. I mean, I'm not putting money on that. But if they trade him, they are make. If they trade Jimmy Garoppolo, they are making a bet that Brady is going to be, you know, at least adequate, a few years. at least adequate for a couple years. Yeah, because okay. they could draft another quarterback this year with, with whatever picks they get from Jimmy Garoppolo. So speaking, Cleveland of quarter- does have the number one pick if they want to give it up. Speaking of quarterbacks. <laughs> Y'all probably want to hear about the quarterback competition at Texas. I mean, spring yeah, football started. Let's hear about it. Well, they've only what, had what? two practices, and they weren't in full pads. But you probably still want to get all the details. I would yeah. like the details. Yeah. And you didn't want to hear about the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> and this is somehow I'll spare prior. Y'all. I'll spare y'all. I know it's you know not quite as exciting to non Longhorn fans. Um, what about NBA? We got well, some NBA things going on. So, for example, the Spurs just took over the yep. number one spot in the West. Golden State seems to be, you know, it's amazing. Fading is you is take maybe away a strong you take word, away Durant, but... and they just don't look so good, or right. as certainly as dominant as they were. So the, it's the, almost like he was an above average player. Above average, <laughs> yeah. But no, but it goes against sort of. So Eric, who's not who's not here to defend himself, has always had this thing where only one person can hold the ball and shoot it in, in basketball. And so with their abundance of superstars, losing someone like Durant shouldn't necessarily have hurt them that well, much. No, I mean, and I think Golden State probably has um, the depth to survive a loss of Durant more than most teams would. And I think they are surviving, though obviously, you know, they've got... The West is stacked enough that, you know, they, they are dropping down slots as a consequence of his absence. Well, you know, it's funny, even... Even after this, and given all these concerns, they are still guess what the ESPN's BPI. So this is an advanced metrics um, on power a power ranking of NBA teams. So we always kind of tout ESPN's. They've got a couple of really good models. Yeah. It's not all their stuff is great, but the FPI in football and the BPI in basketball quite solid. So what do you think their probability for an NBA title is? The NBA title. For Golden State. Well, is Durant coming back before the playoffs, or do we know the actual answer on that? Because that certainly makes it a normal difference. He's expected back before, like, the semifinals, which is presumably when it would be consequential. So I would say their their probability is around 35%. What? 
of winning the NCAA. Really? That high? Yeah. The ESPN has them at 62.4. Even higher. Okay. That can't, now that I don't can't have any faith. Right. I'm just stop. Why, why is no, it like stop. Cleveland? I mean, I would have thought that. Cleveland's all the way down to five. Five percent. The top team what in is the it? East. I, I, top I, team in the East. Admittedly, 5%. I have not been following what's been going on in basketball. Well, they lost professional Boga. basketball. They, okay. Yeah. They, he, they traded for him. He comes in and his first 60 seconds goes out with a broken leg. And so that's a pretty big hit. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have known that you would put. You know that they, they are going to be in the finals, though, or, or at least a team from the East is going to be in the finals. A team from the East. Well, Boston, they have number. Well, Toronto actually they have number two at three point one percent. Boston at two point one percent. So, like, how, how I, I don't understand how if you add up the probabilities of all the Eastern teams, you don't at least get to something like forty percent, right? Because one of them is going to be in the finals. They get Eleven, they eleven percent. They're going to lose. Well, how is that right? saying that the West is so much stronger that whoever comes that, in from the West? Is, there's no way that whatever team from the West plays whatever team from the East is going to be ten to one. That's crazy. Nine to one. Okay. No, well, you remember the figures. You know, those are probabilities, right? So nine to one. Important clarification. No, okay. So I, I hear you, and it actually, I, I, this this calls into some question this system that we've been yeah. kind of advocating. So, by the way, so behind them, San Antonio at twenty one percent. Right. Houston, a distant third out of the West, at four percent. So it's I mean, two teams is lo- only only ones that matter according to ESPN. Yeah, apparently so. And San Antonio's got injury issues as well. So LaMarcus Aldridge has yeah. gone down, and I don't know yet that they have him figured out whether he's coming back. Um, and is there an issue with Leonard as well, or no? Or no, he, I think Leonard's okay. still dominating. I just, I, I think there was that recent matchup between Golden State and San Antonio, and San Antonio. that everybody was, like, both, neither team played anybody, basically. It was like... Is, uh, that, is, yeah. that, is that right? They just yeah. rested them all? Yeah. It's so interesting. Oh, yeah. I saw the ticket prices on this thing. They were through the roof. And then they, and then they got, yeah, like, they I think dropped that was 10% basically nationally televised Aldridge game. Yeah. was going to be out. They rested Leonard. And then on the other side, I think it was like, okay. Draymond Green, I don't think, played. and yeah. <laughs> the NBA is going to be forced into some kind of schedule reduction thing. They must, right? Because it's so obvious that the regular season matters not. When, when, whenever I mean, it's, it, it matters in the sense it allows you to accumulate injuries. You're, it, <laughs> right. it, it, it throws a little bit of variation in that way. But, I mean, obviously, the rec- it doesn't matter. Well, but they've also they've always I mean what matters to them is money. And so yeah, there has well, to be economic there has to become yeah. at some point economic consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that the Charged fewer games as much have half the fewer games. games had higher prices is, yeah. is yeah. and is better for I them? Think that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Can they experiment with that? Figure out what the elasticity yeah, is on would, this? Yeah, it would be hard to experiment with a game schedule, right? But yeah. that's the idea. That's exactly the idea. And it's hard to imagine that more games doesn't bring more money. It is hard to. Imagine. I mean, it means less per, but but, but as a total. You, but increasingly, you see, we talk about mm-hmm. um, we talk about innovation slowly, you know, proliferating through the league. We talk about it with defensive shifts and three point shooting. Well, here's one: rest your players on games that don't matter. That mm-hmm. has become more and more yeah. common, and eventually, there's going to be there already is pushback. Yeah, yeah. From, from a, I'm, I, what, what surprises me is that the NFL is not the NFL has not added games. 
Well, they have threatened mm-hmm. it they, because it's got to yeah. be hugely their their and their right. their point on the on the curve has got to be in the increasing side of things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And but of course, there's the short term, long term thing because it's so the the toll on the players is so significant. Yeah. More how do you, buys, how do you weigh I mean, that in? I mean, but, just a longer season with more rest in between, more regular off. To, they've off talked Sundays. about it. They've, this is very explicitly. They've talked about an 18 game schedule that maybe they would drop two preseason games, mm-hmm. play yeah. 18 games. Maybe they would put in a second bye. And and I mean, for a while, it looked like that was almost inevitable. And then I think it was player pushback and injury. I mean, especially they, now with all the concussion stuff that's yeah. going on, they're going to be able to get away with putting. I mean, every play they have creates the, an increased probability of injury. Yeah, this is one of the downsides of the offensive innovation or in college football that's slowly making its way into pro. There are so many more plays now in college football than there used to be. That the injury risk goes up. Yeah, it's just you know it's, I don't know if it's quite linear. Well, because but they, one, they play one, so one, fast. one thing I think that's more likely that they do in the NFL to increase the number of games just a little bit is maybe take away the like a, a couple more teams allowed in the playoffs and then they take away the first round buys. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's yeah. that's probably the next that's innovation a, kind of in like yeah, terms of increasing a, few, a, a, few, a few, games, few more games, a few games, playoff games specifically, which are presumably even. Well, you know, how much money do you need to make is one of the questions they need to ask themselves. They're, but a, wash, you, no, but it, they're a wash of money. I don't they're think, absolutely a wash of money. I don't think NFL owners Players got, are not. I don't think NFL owners got the where they are today by thinking that way. Yeah, it's blasphemy. That's from the Wharton School, yeah. no less. All right. That's been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. Appreciate your being here this morning. Thanks to Matt Johnson, Deion Simpkins, Adi Weiner, especially Adi starting, starting us off as host. Much appreciated. Shane Jensen, our best to Eric Bradlow, who's off doing Eric Bradlow things. We will be back next week. Please join us. Until then, enjoy your sports.